Welcome to the Engineering Dreams.Space Show. Today I'd like to welcome our guest who has 20 years experience working for NASA. He's established their ro robotics division and now founded his own robotics company called Ceres Robotics. They create AI and robots which are built for the moon and Mars. His ventures are now taking him from the US and bringing him to our shores in New Zealand. Please welcome Michael Sims. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Pleasure to be in the conversation with you. Now, can you give us a bit of background as to how you started and um, where you ended up, uh, how you ended up in NASA? Mm -hmm. uh, well, if I, if I go way back, my parents gave me a golden book of planets, so that sort of head, headed me on the pathway. Um, and so when I was in um, graduate school, I was recruited um, for uh, an artificial intelligence center. They were forming at NASA Ames, and that brought me to Ames. And um, I had previously worked in summers in robotics at NASA. So that's that was sort of what brought me to the game. Did you grow up with an interest in space? Yes. Yes, I, I would say that's a long-standing interest. I am uh, um, remember the Apollo era uh, events and that sort of certainly made a Im big impression on me. Tell us more about where your journey has led. So you've started at NASA, um, and where, where did that head? Yeah, so I started at NASA, um, at NASA Ames, uh, which is in California near San Francisco. And um, actually my entire you know, couple of decades of NASA career were officially at NASA Ames, although I spent a lot of time at Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, so at NASA, I worked, um, I, I worked really early on. Um, I had a job basically was defining uh, robots and, and smart systems that were to be used in space beyond Earth orbit. And that led me to believe strongly in, in the idea of, of robots being sort of our, our entrance, our, our servants in the process of going and exploring space. And so I spent basically the rest of my career doing robotics stuff at NASA. Um, I spent the last half of my career doing Mars rovers and operating rovers on Mars. Post, post that, I sometime around 19... Uh, sorry, 2015, it became clear that for the first time, actually, in my, my interpretation in my career, that you could actually form a career making robots that were used in space. Um, so around that time, I, I first shifted to uh, a space startup called Moon Express. And then I formed Series Robotics, which is our company, um, and um, post that, and Series does both robots for space and uh, landers for the moon or Mars or asteroids. Wow. I'm curious, um, how much has the, the technology changed that uh, underpins and, and makes, it, uh, makes it possible to you know, build these robots, to build these uh, landers? Because you know, we've seen this you know, incredible um, you know, miniaturization of, of technology and uh, you know, so many different uh, improvements. Um, yet, when you when you sort of I guess see uh, you know pictures of 
landers and so on, it doesn't look as though the technology, you know, from the outside has uh, has evolved much since the Apollo era in some areas. Yes. So, so um, one big transition that took place uh, and sort of behind the scenes is the introduction of virtual reality. And that actually is, is a primary driver that allowed us to do um, uh, significant planning and doing that with a lot more sense about it for where robots go and what they're going to do and what's happening. That sort of began taking place um, uh, sometime around the late 1990s, it started coming in, and that was a significant advancement. Now, when we, when we think of the other part of that, um, the lander part, or, and also the robots, it's, it's really, it's cost. Cost is the primary driver in all of that. There are technological advancements, but, but it's how they influence cost, which has sort of been the push that's happened. And um, companies like uh, Rocket Lab and companies like SpaceX have done a huge amount of work on lowering the cost to launch something. Um, we're in a program right now, we being Ceres Robotics, are in a program right now at NASA um, called CLPS, C-L-P-S. And CLPS is a program that's designed to lower the cost of landing. So there's you know, about a dozen companies that are sort of under contract to, to contribute um, landers for, for the moon uh, in this case. Um, and then the third part of the cost is the operations part. And, you know, how do we lower that cost? And so technologies, um, electronics has made a big deal. But so far, the biggest driver by far is the launch cost dropping down to the point that the launch is not, not necessarily the big driver in, in many of these missions. And I guess that's, that's, that's part of the game changer. That's part of the, the time we're in now, isn't it, where the, la- the launch costs are so reduced. Um, you know, private companies are, are involved, um, like yours, uh, in, in all the steps along the way, which uh, certainly has got to help move things forward at a faster pace as well. Yes, yes. I, I, I think from the United States' point of view, the... Um, um, there was a, a way of doing business between government and corporations that had existed in, in the U.S., um, both space and, and defense, and government in general, I guess, which um, one of the consequences of that way of doing business was the prices had very little incentive to decrease over time. Uh, NASA has introduced commercial entities that compete to do the services, and that actually has a very big impact on the price, um, on driving the price. So it suddenly becomes in the interest and prerogative of, uh, of the commercial guys that are supplying the task and the work uh, to make it cheaper. And so you were saying the 90s, NASA was looking at robotics for the Moon and Mars. So this has been um, a plan long in action. For me? Yes. It's been a plan along in action for NASA, I would say, for, for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, one of the things we did along the way was we planned uh, um, the surface operations on Mars for the first Mars habitat. And when you look at that, it became clear to me and other people on that group that 
robotic uh, pre-assembling, robotic setting it up was a, a very game changer. It, it allowed you to do things you otherwise couldn't do. It allowed you to check things. It allowed you to have less redundancy in the system because you knew things were going to work because you'd already set them up. Um, so, yeah, and that that was that was late 90s probably. Um, but if you look back, robotic, these kind of robotic ideas have been percolating inside the research communities and somewhat the somewhat the flight communities, but certainly in research um, since probably at least the 60s. How, uh, how exciting is it being involved in, in this work? Uh, you know, from, from a distance, things appear to happen quite slowly, um, but you know, you get, you've been able to be there at some, you know, some really key points uh, along, along the way. Um, do you, are you sort of celebrating at every, every step or is it, uh, you know, when something uh, lands on, on Mars, how does, how do those things sort of feel and, and how, um, you know, how have you kept, kept motivated along the way? For me personally, I've been very excited and motivated the whole time. So it's not, that's not been part of the equation. Um, I, what I would say is that prior to forming, you know, a startup, um, there was a lot more time to think about all the other events going on in the world of what was happening at a given moment. Um, since that time, mostly we are focused on um, a set of items that were, you know, due tomorrow. And, and every day, is, every day is, uh, is, is packed full of those things. There's not much time to think about it being slow. In, in fact, if it slowed down a little and time dilated a little bit, it would be helpful to us. Um, but from a long-term perspective, again, I think, I think costing, um, has been the, the, um, has been the thing that sort of kept the wonderful dreams that people have had, you know, decades and decades long of how to do the exploration, what to do it. Um, there's no shortage of ideas of how to do it. There's no shortage of the sort of technical components you have to do it. Those are very valuable when you get better ones, but but in fact we had uh, sufficient tools in most of those arenas, you know, in the '60s. Um, but what's different is that we can actually afford to do more of that. We can afford to do um, it, and that I think is what's really so different about today. Everyone around, most of the people listening, will see humans sort of semi-permanently on the moon and maybe semi-permanently on Mars in their lifetimes. Right? I, I believe in both. I believe there are going to be a million people off-world within 40 to 100 years. Right? And if, you, if one takes that to heart, if that sort of humans becoming multiplanetary is believed, then um, we got to get to work. There's a lot to be done, and it's got to be done quickly because um, that's not much time to transform a world in which people could survive comfortably. That's some pretty big numbers. And um, part of Engineering Dreams is about introducing the space industry to other industries that aren't necessarily part of it yet. What sort of people do you think would do well in this industry? Space is really broad, right? So uh, from um, anthropologists to artists to um, many, uh, to writers, to many social scientists, 
that you wouldn't necessarily normally associate with it. It's not to say that those jobs are plentiful, but they're certainly there for the right people, right? And they, and they will continue to be. Um, and in other sectors, um, engineering in general, uh, historically it's been aerospace engineering, electrical engineering as kind of backgrounds of people. Um, software systems of all sorts are incredibly valuable. Um, both because of the ground systems you do and because of the software you actually fly on the robots um, and also what you use for outreach and observations. So it's, it's um, in, in general, it's easier from a, probably easier from a science background. Um, and one of the hard sciences probably makes that even a little easier. Um, but there are people that live quite comfortably as you know, geologists of space and don't um, don't do any engineering at all. So, so a wealth of backgrounds. So there's lots of, lots of opportunities, and and the people that are going to come into the space sector going forward aren't just going to be those that have you know studied um, and uh, and you know expected to be entering into the sector, but uh, you know a mix of people from um, from a range of industries by the sounds of it. There's probably no characteristic that I look for more when I'm hiring someone and I think is more important is the ability to adapt, ability to learn. I mean, it's nice to have your degree on the wall or something, but the bottom line is if you can learn something, you know, for even, regardless of how much you learned in your edu formal education part, there's a lot that you need to pick up along the way because technology's just seen, changed so quickly. Um, and so adaptiveness is great. So somebody who might be, um, I, I see a lot of emphasis in universities and students. And remember, America's had NASA for a long time. New Zealand, Australia, we're new on the scene here. We haven't had 10 to 20 to 30 years of tertiary education in the space industry. So... We have to look at, and New Zealand being quite innovative, we have to look at what we've got here in our pool of people. What do you think of people who have had a um, technology, for instance, background for 30, 40 years and been very successful in that and segueing into the, into the space industry? Sounds like me. Um, so, yeah. I, no, I, no, I actually think that throughout, throughout my career I've had interns and, and uh, fellows working with me that uh, were often what might be referred to as retreaded, right? So they came through another career pathway and then they just decided this is what they wanted to do. And it really is who they are as a person, how, how crisp they are in thinking and how sharp they are at picking up new things um, that make all the difference in, in being successful. And if you Almost always uh, when people are looking at you to do a particular job in this arena, they're looking for someone who has had recent good success, right? And, and that will overweigh, you know, a particular diploma setup. Um, and, um, you know, there's, for example, we commonly come across um, software systems that we need to use for X, Y, or Z, and we didn't create them. We either purchase them or they're, we get them from the government or some other form. But um, 
you know, learning how to do a whole new system that does a whole new set of physics, for example, that you've never done before is something I regularly ask people to look at and do. Um, that's the kind of thing I expect, and I'm not looking for people that sort of had previously necessarily done that. I mean, it's useful if they do, but, but it's also equally open space if they're willing to learn. And how much has uh, Sarah's Robotics had to adjust and, and change? In the, you've been in operation for about five to, to six years now. Has there been a lot of change over that over that time, or is your tra main trajectory, uh, you know, fairly similar, and it's um, you know more behind the scenes those changes? We we did do one pivot along the way. Um, so um, we we believe that robots on planetary surfaces are really you know robots. And let me say a little what I mean by that. So robots that do science, robots that place cabling down, robots that place solar panels, robots that inspect the outside of a habitat, uh, robots that set, do farming, that make sure that the greenhouse is operating, that do inspections, those kind of things, um, I think are really a fundamental part of our future. Um, that's, you know, we're going to land large landers on the planetary surfaces and they're going to have to have things taken away from those and installed and begun to operate um, or in collaboration with humans that are there. So those kind of um, robotic activities are the future, but in some sense, they're also where we started. Um, what's different about where we did a, a pivot along the way at, at Ceres was uh, we were we were slated to have the um, um, first commercial rover on the moon uh, as part of a NASA contract, and and the prime in that contract decided to uh, give up the contract and no, not finish it, um, and that was a bit annoying, um, and we wanted to control our destiny a little more, so we had the wherewithal engineering wise and to propose a, a spacecraft to land on the moon. And the NASA CLPS program, CLPS program, was looking for a small set of companies to firm up. They're already set of nine teams. So they, in um, 2019, November, I guess, um, they took SpaceX and Blue Origin, Sierra Nevada, uh, Tyvek, and Ceres as five teams to sort of beef up their background. So, Based on that pivot, um, we now have a lot of effort in in the arena of building landing craft for the surfaces. Um, the launch services, are you partnered with anyone in particular to to get your robots onto the moon and Mars? Um, yes, so the NASA CLIPS program is is a commercial program uh, designed for the commercial contractor, in this case it would be us, um, to um, arrange, a bit of sun there, to arrange um, um, all of the components that are necessary to fly such a mission. And NASA simply says, here's our instrument, put this on it and make it work, right? And then call back the data when we want it, effectively is what the situation is. Um, as part of that, it is, and it's part, it's also part of the process of price 
improvement in the NASA world, um, we contract directly with launch providers. So we have fairly large uh, vehicles that go to, um, that head to the moon, you know, two, three metric tons sort of class if these days. Um, and it'll probably, you know, double at some point to that number. Um, so, and we take those, um, and so we negotiate with the launch vehicles um, as to who would take, who would, who would send us partway there. So uh, in general, we've, we've had agreements along the way with both SpaceX and with Blue Origin. So those are the two that we've so far been in negotiation with. And, and we, the contract itself is formed post our winning the contract. So there's so far just a gentleman's agreement with a piece of IOU, a piece of um, uh, agreement to work together. Are the rovers fully intact or when they arrive on each, um, either moon or Mars, does somebody have to assemble them? No, they're fully intact. Um, if you think of the, the Mars rovers, they... they which, which comes back to one of Paul's earlier points. Um, things, landers are going to look like landers. They're going to be ugly because they don't have to look chic, sleek because there's no atmospheric drag or anything. So they're going to look, generally they're going to look like all of them look more or less the same. The only sort of thing that smooths them out are the solar panels we're forced to put around them and the insulation we put around to keep the thermal things going. But, as part of that, the rovers are intact. Um, the next uh, CLIPS program, next CLIPS mission will have five rovers. All of those will just be dropped off the lander onto the ground. Um, but in general, they're either on the top of the lander or on the sides and, or maybe underneath. Um, and um, those rovers are somehow gotten from the lander to the surface. Um, just a little future on that is SpaceX is building something it calls the Starship, which is a, is a very large uh, vehicle. And if mind-blowingly large, isn't it? It's 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 one, orders of magnitude large. above where we were operating it at the moment. Yes, and probably an order of magnitude cheaper per kilogram. So it's it's a yes. big deal. But um, they're slated to be able to land 100 kilograms, 100 metric tons on the moon surface and bring back 50 metric tons, which is a lot of sample return. But, but dropping 100 metric tons, to give you a comparison, the Curiosity rover or the Perseverance rover is one metric ton. So from a mass category, you could put 100 of those inside the SpaceX uh, Starship and then you've got this, you know, parking lot of rovers. How do you get them onto the surface? So that's one of the issues. That's the kind of issues we have to address. Exciting issues and, and challenges to have, right? It is. It is. Uh, the, the rub is that the Curiosity rover and the, and the Perseverance rover are about $2.5 billion each. Um, and that includes a launch vehicle, which is, you know, half that or something. But it's still... 
hugely expensive instrument to fly. So we, we can't yet afford to fly 100 of those in one flight. Um, yeah, but lowering those costs is part of what we're, the game we're playing. What do you see the future being? I mean, you've obviously been a visionary for a very long time. And um, I mean, we're talking about mining on asteroids. Are you building rovers and launches for asteroids? I mean, what, what does the future look like for us for the next 10, 20 to 50 years? Most investors want to know what it's like the next five to 10 years. <laughs> so that's where my focus has been lately. Um, uh, we, we, we want to step it up and make it a little bit more challenging for you, Mike. Yeah, yeah. So the next, the next five to 10 years, I'll start there and go out further. Next five to 10 years, it's going to be a lot of uh, landers and orbital things going to cislunar space or the space around the moon area. Um, and there's correspondingly going to probably be a lot going further out to the moon and to asteroids. The, the, there are th three parts to it. Is I, uh, there's the launch, which prices are going to be fairly stable. Uh, maybe we'll come down with, with SpaceX new, new vehicle, but those are fairly stable costs. And those are very low margin costs. So they don't make much money when they launch one of those things. They're very tightly comp competed. Um, the second arena is the landers, which is the clips looking at for the moon, um, and, and we are building those and for um, asteroids and on to Mars. Um, there's some extension of that, but I think there will, those that are set for the moon are probably going to go on to asteroids and to Mars and be much, much cheaper than traditional NASA missions to those places. So I think the costing is the huge effort that's going to take place. But and, and what that means is a lot more missions. It means a lot more activity and a lot more things going on, right? It doesn't necessarily mean overall that much less money. And if you look at some place like NASA, they have a fixed budget. So it's if they can do more things, they will do more things in that amount of money. Um, and then that should go out into the next decade. The, the big, the big question mark in all of that is what uh, happens with us, a starship. So the starship sort of changes the whole economics, changes the whole game. So let me tell you the pathway that I believe is most likely, which includes the starship. And if you ask someone to explain that future without a starship, they will give you a different future. But if, if you have a starship, you have this large vehicle that's, that's, uh, re, that's reusable, that you can actually fill up in, in orbit so that you can do these missions to the moon, missions to Mars. And it carries a huge amount of mass, which is a huge number of either, a fair number of people or a lot of mass, um, probably both over time. So um, if, if a starship lands, first lands um, in five years, that's probably, Elon would probably say that's too long, far out, but if it one lands in five years, that just changes the whole landscape. What that means is that the prices of everything you put on the surface has drastically decreased. Um, and you also, not only has it drastically decreased, but you have a huge opportunity to fly, which you didn't have before. So as it is, um, we are flying clips at a pretty high clip right now. Well, we're they're creating the proposals to fly to high clip. They haven't been any flown yet. 
at that rate, uh, we have about four a year. Um, those are each been about 100 kilograms. And if you compare that to one lander of a Starship at, uh, at 100 metric tons, you get the sense of the proportion of how much more things we can bring. So one landing of a Starship, you will bring down um, an outpost. You know, it will look like McMurdo or somewhere in the Antarctic, um, you know, a standard science outpost. Um, it's going to be uh, people coming and going from that for quite a while. They're going to be science missions that are going to start expanding over the entire surface of the moon and also cislunar space. Um, so those will be um, coupled um, with a number of activities through, you know, sort of smaller stations around the moon. But there, there will be at least one large station, maybe multiple large, and a number of small sort of warehouses or places you can safely stay. Um, and that should, that process should grow, go on except growing as a function of time. So you can, you can pretty well set down a village or a good portion of, of a habitable place in one landing of one starship. If you think of multiple over time, then you can think of multiple villages or much more refined things being created at given spots. And then for the small lander companies like we are right now, that just creates more opportunities because you're not going to have the big landers going everywhere you want them to go. You're going to, have need, you're going to need short-term supplies between when they're coming, and you're going to need landing. Um, uh, you're going to need to go to other places that the big ships won't go to. Going on out, um, the economics are in some ways kind of astonishing, and that's sort of driving part of it. The, it costs, let me just do the energy side, it costs less energy to send a kilogram of anything from the moon, surface of the moon, to low Earth orbit than it does to send that kilogram from low Earth orbit. I mean, from the Earth to low Earth orbit. So the, from an energy point of view, the surface of the moon is closer to low Earth orbit than is the surface of Earth. That's pretty astonishing. Um, what that means is that you can anticipate huge amounts of things there being interacting with, with activities going on in Earth orbit. Um, the big driver uh, that people care about on the moon is water. Is there water there? And it's, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. It's, it's partially it's an essential part for, for life. It also can be turned into rocket fuel. And it also seems to be there, so that's a good idea. It's, it do it. Um, how much effort it will be to process that is, um, well, it's, it's a substantial amount. You have to dig up a lot of dirt, and you have to process through a lot of dirt. You know, you're up to maybe, if you're lucky, 3% uh, water in the stuff you're dealing with. And so you have a lot of, uh, it's an industrial process. It'll be, you know, strip mining coupled with industrial processing to generate much water on the moon. Do you think we're far from, from, from that process? I'm, a, I'm, I'm not the best one to ask because I'm not as necessarily as strong a believer in others in that. But um, it, it is definitely the flag that everyone is putting in front of themselves for why going to the moon is a good idea. Right? We, can, we can start 
getting enough water that we can start affording to pay to refuel rockets um, for all of inner solar system space, but also to Earth orbit. Um, so, but it but it is an industrial size process. Um, now, it, it, from a mining company, mining companies are used to dealing with these kinds of projects. So, you know, we go next door to Australia or something. You know, this is just oh, a, a small thing, right? But on the moon, it's a big deal. So, I don't know how long that'll be. But there are resources that are readily available in asteroids too. And near Earth asteroids are. Um, um, Near-Earth asteroids are reservoirs that don't have a lot of, don't require a lot of energy to get into the, to the space around us. So, near-Earth asteroids. And the final, I guess the final piece to all of this, well, final two pieces. One piece is there will continue to be scientific investigations throughout the solar system. So, things like the Curiosity rovers, you're gonna, we're going to send interesting things to the other planets in the solar system uh, and, and, their, and their satellites. Um, the final part is Mars. Um, Elon Musk is, has committed to uh, Mars being habited by humans in a large scale, and that's a lot to do with his building of his large rocket. Um, I think it's a very reasonable plan, um, and I think unlike governments who have struggled forever to find a way to sort of manage it in a way that makes sense for a business or makes sense economically. I think Musk has sort of figured that out. I think he understands what he's doing. I think it's not going to be huge government programs settling Mars like it would have been under all the plans we did before this decade or so. So Elon found an opportunity and um, and ran with it, and it's obviously been very successful. Is there another opportunity that you can see out there for somebody else? So, I mean, we're talking, we've got ground services, we've got the launch services, we've got the rovers. What else is out there that somebody could potentially come forward with? The, I, I think if you look around on Earth, the kinds of things that we do are going to be done in space. So once we get there, all the sort of demands we have are going to get transferred to wherever you have to be. Um, if you're on, if you think of the moon, uh, the first thing that comes up is communication. What does communication look like? What's the orbital system that gives you local positioning? And we can do most of it without orbital positioning, but it's helpful. So GPS systems for the moon, that kind of thing. GPS for the planetary system a communication system that works for the entire um, inner solar system. You know, there's um, um, interstellar uh, internet protocols, not interstellar, but, you know, interplanetary uh, internet protocols that allow you to communicate in ways that you can manage the very large latencies uh, that you get when light goes from one planet to another, which, you know, a couple of seconds to the moon, but can be 10 minutes to close to an hour to Mars round trip. Looks like there's, uh, there's going to be plenty of opportunities uh, ahead to keep a lot of people busy over 
um, not just the short term, but over a really long period of time. Yeah, and the really the hard part in the game, which is always true in, in technology development, right? The hard part in the game is getting from where we are right now to that step where, where there are immense opportunities. And you know, right now there are, um, but if you had uh, um, tried to argue the opportunity of, say, some of Elon Musk's cars or uh, rockets prior to them being actually put out, uh, I think a lot of people have said, no, there's not much opportunity. So right now we're in a game where the understanding of what the opportunity is, is um, are not strong. And um, most people have looked at people like me and the community saying, you know, this is just around the corner. And if they believed it up until now, they were sort of, you were being on a fool's errand. So, but I think, I think it is different. I think today is quite different from how it's ever been before. Since the 90s t through till now, you would have seen an evolution in not only the hardware for, for the robotics, but the software. So you work a lot with the AI um, technology. What, um, what are you, do you develop this yourself or do you uh, use somebody else? Um, both, but there's a lot of expertise on our team for that. There's a, there's a, a strategy in the space world these days that most people would like to follow as well as they can which is a vertical integration. So um, as much as you can, you would like to own those resources that you utilize. So for the most part, I would say, yes, they're not probably, um, you know, core technologies, you're not, you're not contracting out to an alternative person, but the expertise that's there will be widely drawn on. Um, and there, you know, there's uh, long, um, history of systems in AI um, that have shown themselves to be immensely valuable and are, are valuable in a lot of what we do. Um, and the use of them in space has mostly been driven by social factors much more than technical factors. Um, as, as I'm sure you know, there was a, a transition in our ability to manage um, data um, in, in what were originally, well, in neural net sort of environments in which you take huge amounts of data and manage that. And that transition, you know, about a decade or so ago, um, was a drastically improvement in those technologies. And that sort of led to most of the advances in machine learning and, and the applications of all that. So there's still huge applications of that sort of technology to, um, in your controlling robots um, and in what you're doing with them. And even more strongly, I would say, uh, well, maybe equally strongly, um, the whole maturing of uh, operating systems and having um, um, viable operating systems for robots and viable operating systems that we can actually spy on, fly on a spacecraft is, is, is a major advance. Historically, an operating system for a spacecraft was written by hand for each spacecraft, um, which is a horrible thing to do. <laughs>
but so, necessary it, those days. Um, ingenuity is um, obviously it's been on Mars for a little while now. Are you using a similar technology uh, to control that as what you would with your rovers? Um, probably not. Um, well, let me let me back up a little bit. Um, flight flight is a different game um, than you have on a surface. Um, there's um, so. But the components of that, if, if you look at the components such as the recognition of, of objects in your, your terrain, identification of where you're at from simply from image data, um, tracing that along has been in the laboratory widely used for decades, right? The kind of background stuff that's done there. Um, it's that kind of image recognition we fully expect to use. Um, we... Uh, the current set of rovers that we have looked at and we've worked on to date have been wheeled rovers. But I actually fully believe that we're going to use legged rovers a great deal. And so the kinds of technologies that have come out of Boston Dynamics and, and other players, you know, which have a, a very long research history, but that kind of ability to have robust uh, um, motion across the surface is something I fully anticipate being a significant part of everywhere we go. Um, you know, your, your robot assistant uh, may well look like a Star Wars creature. But may, maybe it, uh, it moves a bit more smoothly than, uh, than some of the Star, Star Wars uh, <laughs> robots. I've seen some of their dancing. It's pretty good. <laughs> Now, I'm keen to hear a little bit about, I understand that um, you might be setting up or, or doing something uh, down under here in, uh, in New Zealand. Where, do, where does that fit in and uh, how, does, uh, uh, you know, how attractive is New Zealand as a place to do business um, as far as the space sector is concerned and, and um, you know, f for your business specifically? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's it's incredibly encouraging that Rocket Lab has done such a good job at, at sort of managing to bridge the gap from New Zealand and with the U.S. The problem we have, and, and I'm sure it's part of what Rocket Lab would say too, the problem we have is that the large dollars in this world are sort of U.S.-centric these days. So we're always going to have a primary part are a big part of our company, US-centric. Um, but given that, where else in the world would I like to work? New Zealand is like the top of the list. <laughs> um, and there's you know, personal reasons that that's an interesting choice. Um, it's, it's a place that I like the people that I've met from there, and I like the environment, so that makes it very attractive. Um, I like you know, the government and the social ways that, that New Zealand treats all of that, that also makes it very attractive for us. And, and in, in turn, that makes it attractive for employees of ours that actually will end up in New Zealand. So um, our goal, our, our objective since the beginning has been to draw on the strength that New Zealand has in, um, in virtual reality modeling, uh, especially in the realm of uh, films. Um, and utilize that in, in our use in 
and planetary robots and rovers. We've used, um, my team has developed and used ro um, virtual reality systems on, on surface of Mars, you know, for, since the Pathfinder era. Um, and, um, well, since 2000, if, if you don't know when Pathfinder was, roughly since 2000. Um, so um, that's, uh, it, it's, it's a different kind of modeling that one needs to do on a planetary surface. Um, than on on movies, um, but there's a lot of commonality across it. There's a huge amount of stuff that comes across. But I, I can just give you one trivial example, which is, it, we would never fill in the back of a rock we couldn't see. You just never. On, on, when you're doing when you're doing virtual reality for people to actually do real science, you don't make up things about backsides of rocks, for example, and make up what it looks like. It's just a hole. That's all it will look like in our models. And that's what we want it to look like when you're on a surface because when we fill, we'd like to smoothly fill in that data when we get it, but we don't, wanna, we don't want the process to be necessarily... Look. So there's a, there's a difference in the virtual reality modeling, but, that's, but that's, it's been our intention to move that part of our business to New Zealand. So the virtual reality, is that, um, is that a basis for the moon and Mars, what you're building there? With the rovers? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think the the virtual reality side of it, um, at, you know, is obviously is, is very very important for the business. But I think there's also uh, that opportunity to to connect the public and to connect more people with, uh, you know, with this work. I, I remember a uh, a visit uh, with Microsoft and uh, something they had built in uh, in collaboration with uh, with NASA. Um, and uh, Buzz Aldrin was uh, was part of it, and it was this um, you know walk, basically an opportunity to to walk on on Mars wearing their you know their hollow lens uh, equipment, and uh, yeah, it was it was a real treat to be able to do it. But I imagine this sort of thing will be you know uh, become uh, just better and better over time, and um, you know more accessible um, from that public perspective, but uh, also. As that technology ad advances, it just becomes a, a commonplace tool within your uh, your tool set to uh, work through these things and 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 test them. Yeah, for um, Mars Pathfinder in 1997, uh, we supplied head-mounted displays and tracking, and people would for the science team to be able to walk around and see what the scene looked like and and, and experience it. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's um, I, I can give you an example, another example that's somewhat interesting. Uh, we were doing a, a test in Southern California a number of years ago um, at a place called Amboy Crater, uh, which is just a volcanic crater there. And um, uh, Pete Conrad, who was one of the Apollo guys, um, was controlling the rover. And he's sitting there joysticking this particular rover. And he took a vehicle that was, you know, I tell people regularly, you can't do anything bad with it. Just go forward and don't worry about it. He took a vehicle like that and flipped it, right? He flipped it over. And the reason he did was because he didn't remember that what was behind him was a very large rock. And this rover just climbed up that rock until it flipped over. Um, that's... That's the problem you have in operation on a 
vehicles uh, on planetary surfaces. You, you, what, that sort of sense of presence is one of the primary things you lose. Uh, and you don't know what's in that direction or you don't remember what's behind you. And so the way we managed all of that, uh, you know, over the last few decades is to sort of figure out how to create those worlds that are realistically attached to the, to the vehicle you have in such a way that you can, you can actually see and manage it carefully and do it. Um, well, is there any advice that you can give um, anybody who wants to be part of the space industry um, on how they might get there and um, for startups like Engineering Dreams, um, yeah, what piece of advice can you give? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure the answer is follow your dream. Um, maybe it is. But, um, but what I am sure is that if you're not in love with what you're doing, you're not going to have the strength to get through the hard points parts. So there will be, you know, there will be days you're forced to, you know, spend 24 hours in your office and sleep on a couch or on the floor, you know, for some period of time. It's, it's, there's nothing necessarily easy about the jobs. Uh, they're long and demanding. And when those things come up, the, the critical thing about it is, do you love what you're doing? Is this a place you want to be? You know, and it, it particularly helps if there are people around you that you want to be with, right? So that not only are you doing what you want to do, but you, you're not angry at people, but you actually like the people you're working with. And if you can find that kind of environment that sort of excites you, um, go for it. That's my advice that you... You may not you may not get everything you want, but you should get things that you really are proud you did and are glad you did. Now I'm I'm just curious because I know we're, we're we're probably running out of uh, running out of time. I uh, feel like we could talk for for hours, but uh, I am um, you know we we will have to <laughs> let you go soon. Um, but yeah, because we're based here in New Zealand, we're, we're very interested in, you know, what is the potential for New Zealand in the space sector? We're very pleased with uh, a lot of the activity that's already, already uh, you know, happened uh, in space and aerospace. Um, but we're, we're curious as to how do we, you know, keep the momentum going. And, you know, I see there's, there's probably different areas that are important that we, uh, you know, we... Uh, educate more more people to be able to work, um, you know, within the space sector. Um, but is New Zealand an attractive enough place on its own that we're going to naturally uh, keep attracting, um, you know, more companies to uh, to New Zealand? Or are there things that need to be done from a government perspective or other perspectives to make this a great place uh, to build the the space sector? Yeah, and although I've had some briefish conversations with the New Zealand Space Agency. I don't understand what's going on there well enough to sort of give any advice with respect to that. So that 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 I would not sort of do. I have worked closely with two New Zealand space companies, uh, Space Base, um, which is out of Christchurch, and and um, and also out of Auckland, um, extraterrestrial power. So both of those we've done joint work with um, over time. And, and so there are companies that are, and, and Space Base in particular is really 
trying really hard to bring in indus, uh, space industry into New Zealand and sort of enable that as part of a world, worldwide effort toward democratizing space. And I, I think that's wonderful. I think it's great. Um, so the interest, the, the thing that's happened over the last um, bit is that the price of launching and doing a mission has already drastically dropped. So um, we can now do um, pretty reliably, you can contract a mission to the moon to land on the moon gently for about $100 million plus whatever you want to put on it, right? Um, that's probably an order of magnitude below what it was a decade or so ago. Um, now, that's not below what, what the contractors would have told you a decade or so ago. They would have told you it was cheaper, but, but when they got done writing the checks, it would have been an order of magnitude more probably for all those, um, which is part of the game is getting those prices down and being honest about what they're going to be at the end. Um, so the price of actually going to space has drastically dropped. And in series, we, uh, we propose flying on, on the CLPS missions our B-5 uh, lander. Uh, and our B-5 lander will land 500 kilograms of payload on the surface. And on one of the missions that we win, which we expect to win in the next six months, um, that we uh, will carry about 100 kilograms of NASA payload. So there's still another 400 kilograms of possible payload uh, for either small payloads or for um, other larger payloads or a couple. So um, I, I, I think in terms, so I, I apologize for this part, but I'll explain it. I think in terms of what you do on the planetary surface, right? That's sort of where I come from and where I'm thinking about. But there's also the whole suite of opportunities that reside in software systems associated with data, right? And that's actually have much larger margins than, than you do in hardware in general. Um, so if you look at the software systems, um, uh, right now, climate evaluation and climate change is a very hot topic and lots of things are looked at in that arena. And if you're in the software side, you can actually be, you know, people can do them on their desktop if they're smart enough, right? And it doesn't necessarily take the same kind of capital. Um, New Zealand as a nation has the opportunity to partner with the other nation states in space programs. So uh, New Zealand can uh, form an agreement uh, with, with NASA or US where they can put some payload on, on a lander, right? So that's, that's an agreement New Zealand can come to. Um, you know, you, so I, th I think there are lots of opportunities for a place like New Zealand that didn't exist before. And it's, New Zealand has a nice characteristic um, which is, I, I repeat, which is that it's a place people want to be. A lot of people enjoy what they know about New Zealand, whether they've been there or not. And a lot of people that have been there want to stay or want to go back, right? So, so recruit, recruiting of key personnel in New Zealand um, is generally going to be easier than recruiting of key personnel in a lot of places in the world. Um, 
in having uh, from from our perspective there are constraints over you know what kind of countries and con contracts we can have New Zealand is you know all stars and it's good for all of that so great well we um, we look forward to having you here I look forward to being there thank you Thank you, Michael. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Jess. And um, we will we will definitely be following you and your success and um, bringing it to our shores. We welcome you with our open arms. So thank you very much. Thank you.